Dear Father, thank you for this night, for the chance to study again after our break for Thanksgiving. Father, beyond all we may have given thanks for already in the week past, we thank you here and now for both the privilege and the blessing to approach you boldly in prayer with intentions. Still, Father, you call on us to raise them up to you in specifics and with an appeal, knowing you are good and will do what is right. And in that we trust, Father, and we pray that you would uh, hear and answer according to your will all that we have and all that we need. Father, as well for the teaching uh, this evening, though I have studied and I have done my best to prepare it, Father, it means nothing as a work of men, but if it is by your Spirit, Father, and if you choose to use it and work through it, it can be unto salvation and to your glory. So we pray, Father, for that end. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know, sometimes as a teacher you get a chance to learn more than the students, so I keep going back in my mind to what we saw in chapter 10, which I thought was thrilling. Now, you know, sometimes I get excited about stuff no one else does, but I really enjoyed, and I hope you did too, seeing how God has taken events that Isaiah talked prophetically about in his day, the events of Assyria coming into Judah, having taken over the northern kingdom of Israel and moved into the southern kingdom. And as all of that played out later, from the day Isaiah spoke it, God had orchestrated all of it so that it was a perfect picture of what happens in a day that's even future today, a day of tribulation for the world, when the Antichrist will be doing much the same again against another Israel gathered in her land. Just remarkable that God could speak to Isaiah about a day that's future to him and in that conversation carry out two stories, one for the future to him and one for the future to us. And yet it's all literal and true. It's just amazing. Well, that pattern just keeps coming in this book. And I think really that may be the easiest, simplest way to conceive of how God approached the authorship of the book. We have here a fairly simple book from the point of view that it covers only a handful of things. It just covers them over and over again. But with each occurrence, God will layer new information and new experience on top of what he's already given us. And particularly in the parts of the book that are historic, where there's an event of the current day under examination, we're going to always have an attitude of prophetic insight. What is it God is also explaining about other circumstances that will parallel these? And the book will just come to life that way, I hope, because it shows that, uh, that pattern over and over again. We'll get a little bit more of that tonight. Let's take some time to... Uh, so tonight, uh, as we finished chapter 10 and entered into chapter 11 and into 12, we're going to be finishing the book of Emmanuel. I want to give you the flow from 10 to 11 by going backward just slightly into 10 and not really with any intent to stay there long but just to highlight a few things as we leave that chapter and remember then or then see how we go into the next one start about verse 28 just reading quickly glancing if nothing else over the page uh, and looking at how the chapter ends in chapter 28 or chapter 10 rather verses 28 through 32 Isaiah you'll notice just scanning down the page, he lists a series of place names. And these names are being listed here as part of the larger discussion of how God was going to judge Assyria for the way Assyria was too eager in their role of being God's instrument of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. They had a mission. God gave it to them. They were to go into the northern kingdom, but they thought themselves better than that and decided that they were going to go past Israel and into Judah. And in their arrogance and pride, God judged them later in the way that they themselves were destroyed. We looked at that when we jumped forward into the later chapters of Isaiah, and we saw the scene where the army of Assyria is finally destroyed by the angel of the Lord. Do you remember all this, I hope? So as he comes to that concluding point at the end of chapter 10, he lists all these place names. If you were to chart them on a map, and some of these names are not contemporary, so you'd have to know the, the ancient name and then figure out what that equates to in present-day geography. If you put them on a map, you would find that in the order they're listed here in chapter 10, each is progressively closer to Jerusalem along a pretty straight line. And as it turns out, this is the progression that the army of Assyria made as they moved from north to south and came down toward Jerusalem. In the end, we know God saved Jerusalem. They got up to the neck, remember? as the text described it, never conquered the city, God instead beating them back. And we see that in verses 33 and 34 at the end of the chapter. 
But also remember, this last section will follow the same pattern that the ones prior to it have been following. What was the pattern that was defining now the second half of the book of Emmanuel? There you go. The, the names of the two sons of Isaiah plus Isaiah's name itself, all three of those names, were prophetic. And as we saw at an earlier point in the book of Emmanuel, Isaiah said that he and his family, he and his sons, their lives would be prophetically picturing Israel's future. What he was saying was the sons had been given names which spoke to what was coming for Israel. One of the names said that they would be captive of Assyria. Another name said that there would be a remnant that would return. And then Isaiah's name. Isaiah is the one we haven't covered yet. And his name is the overarching theme for chapters 11 and 12 to finish the book of Emmanuel. Isaiah means salvation is of the Lord. And sure enough, chapter 11 opens with a description of this salvation. So look at chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So those are verses I venture to guess many of us have read or heard before. Certainly the first part of that, incredibly familiar, uh, I would expect, for most people. And yet I ask you to look at them again, particularly within the context of the book of Emmanuel, what we know that book is about. Isaiah here, as you see these verses open, uses both the branch motif again, which is something he's done before, and uh, he alludes here to the child motif, though he doesn't use the word child, nor the name Emmanuel. It's a great poetic transition from 10 to 11. Think about how it connects for a moment. Remember at the end of 10, if you scanned those uh, verses a moment ago with me, you notice he talks at the very end there about how God himself will cut down Assyria like the trees of Lebanon. Cut them down. Mow them down. What do you get when you mow down a tree? Stump, right? There's an intentional poetic illusion there from 10 to 11 where he's drawing a, a connection between the imagery you're left with at the end of 10 and turns it to a new use here at the beginning of chapter 11. It's a picture of what? When we think of a sprout, or in this case a shoot, it says coming out of a stump, begins to suggest many things, particularly in case of this picture that he's using here, it comes to the issue of new life, right? It comes down to the beginnings of something, or a phoenix-like reemergence of life from ashes. And, of course, we're talking here about the rebirth and the hope of an Israel that, in other words, the city has been brought to the brink. God has saved them in the moment. And then there's a rebirth in the city. And this rebirth starts with a shoot that is said to come from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's father. David, of course, the king that followed Saul. And it's a reference, when we think of the stem coming out of Jesse, it's a reference to the Davidic or kingly line of Judah which we know is the line that was prophetically said to be the source for the Messiah. So it's a very easy way to see that we're saying the Messiah, the one who's supposed to come out of the Davidic line, the one that's supposed to come out of the tribe of Judah. This is the one we're talking about. That's no surprise to most of you, I'm sure. That's something many have already seen. But here's a question you may not have answered before. Why didn't it just say a stem from the branch or the shoot of David? Isn't really the Davidic line the point we always make, the throne of David, isn't that the connection we make? If you're also just referencing Judah, well, it really doesn't matter which of the two you pick if you're just trying to mention Judah. So it begs the question, why make Jesse the point of reference? Why not David himself? Well, there's at least a couple reasons. From where does David rule? In other words, from where does he find his source? David is given the promise when he rules that he will also have a throne of his own or a right to rule forever. But that promise is rooted in what? in the reigning of the Messiah himself. There is no throne from which David can participate and rule with Christ if Christ himself is not on it. We know that in um, Ezekiel we're told that when David returns in the kingdom, as we all will with him, he returns as prince of Israel. Christ rules as king of the world, but there's a government under Christ. 
And the chief ruler of the nation of Israel under Christ is David. David returns to the throne, just as is promised. And that shouldn't be a surprise, because if he's a believer, he'll be there with us, just like all of us, ruling in some capacity, and David gets his throne back. And the twelve tribes are ruled over by the twelve apostles, according to the New Testament. And we share in that rule and reign by reigning in a government over the Gentile nations. But the point I'm making is that David's right and authority in that respect is ultimately rooted in who? Christ. So when we talk about a shoot here, the shoot doesn't emanate from David. In the way it's positioned here in the text, it's as if David emanates from it. And that's the way we should be seeing it. They're from the same family line, but it's intentional that we go back a step in the progeny to make clear that David is rooted in Christ, not Christ in David. There's a second reason, though, and it has to do with the humbleness of the beginnings of Jesse. David's life was taken at an early age from a meagerness of, of being a shepherd and elevated into kingship at a relatively early age. By the time he was 30, he was ruling. But Jesse never had that. Jesse was and lived his whole life as a poor shepherd in Bethlehem. And it's that image of the poor shepherd in Bethlehem that becomes the basis for comparison to who? Or the Christ, the poor child born in Bethlehem under humble circumstances. Jesse is actually a better picture of Christ, but with respect to which appearance of Christ? First coming. By saying he will be a shoot from the branch of Jesse, he is suggesting clearly, the text suggests clearly, this is someone from whom David himself finds his source, and yet, in comparison to Jesse, he has a very humble inauspicious beginning in the city of Bethlehem. All of the parallels are reinforced when we learn who Christ really was. Now look at the person a little more. We're told some things about this coming salvation. We're told he will have the Spirit of the Lord upon him. In fact, based on the text, he'll have more than just the Spirit of the Lord. He'll have the full measure of the Holy Spirit. The full measure of the Holy Spirit. All seven attributes. What is the definition, according to the New Testament, of a Christian? What defines who is and who is not a Christian? Those who have the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Your personal confession of faith is the means to that end. But it is not who can say they are Christian who is Christian. It's not who can say the right words and go down to the altar and do all the magic tricks who is a Christian. Those are a means to an end, and for those in whom that action is accompanied by true faith in the heart... They are Christian, but because the Holy Spirit indwells them, not because they followed the right mantra or did all the right tricks. I mean, look at Paul. Paul did none of the mantra, none of the tricks. And many others like him who can point to a similar testimony of miraculous new rebirth, which ultimately is the answer to everyone's faith, miraculous rebirth. It may be accompanied by a very standard kind of confession, or it may not. The truth of it, though, is that the Holy Spirit is the defining difference. Now, having said that, What's the difference between what would be true for the Messiah, here we see receiving the full measure of the Spirit, compared to you and I who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Can the Spirit be divided? In a sense, no. There's only one Spirit, and wherever He is, that's where the Spirit is. But He can be localized if you consider His work to be evidence of His existence. For example, if I had an unbeliever standing next to me, I can say definitively, the Holy Spirit is not there. And, if, and as a believer, I can say definitively, the Holy Spirit is here. Well, he's not there, and he is here. So I can localize him in that respect. But, if i got two Christians in the room, he's both there and there. So in that sense, I can't limit him. As spirit, he can, his presence can be known in more than one place at one moment. What if, on the other hand, he wanted to be all in just one place? Could he do that? If he chose, if, if that were his purpose, absolutely he could. He could, in other words, be said to be only here or there, if that was his intended purpose or his intended choice. When he was on Christ, all of the Holy Spirit, we're told, was with Christ. All of him, descending, as we see in the Gospels, like a dove, a theophany, a picture that was used to create an understanding of what God was doing in the moment. And we have some indication of that through several places in Scripture, so I want to reinforce what I'm saying in Scripture, of course. First, look at the text before us. We have seven attributes here given of the Spirit of God, starting with the Spirit of the Lord is the first, and then wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear. Now, these seven attributes, I would argue, are not necessarily all that we could say to describe the Spirit, but 
by the fact that God chose to use seven attributes here, he sends a very clear message to us through the text that the full measure of the Holy Spirit is present because we know the number seven has meaning to God and he doesn't use it arbitrarily. So where he chooses to, to use a, a, a numbering of seven, then he is choosing it because he wants to communicate something about the moment. And here we would say the seven suggests what? Completeness, fullness. Uh, nothing more is, is available. So it would suggest that the sevenness of the Spirit's presence here suggests that the Spirit's effort and work on earth in this moment becomes concentrated in the physical presence of the incarnate God, the second person of the Trinity. This would explain a lot of things. For example, when Christ goes into Nazareth and cannot perform miracles, we're told in Luke and, and the other Gospels, because specifically the Holy Spirit does not allow it, it makes clear that his incarnate form as human limited him, and it was a voluntary thing on his part to take that form, and put him in a position to be fully dependent on the Spirit for his supernatural capacities that he previously had independent of the Holy Spirit, and which he now has again. But for the time he took the form and walked the earth, he voluntarily took a form that limited him by, de by definition and put him in a state where he was fully dependent on the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit worked through him according to the Father's will. And in that completeness of the moment it would necessarily mean he's not somewhere else doing anything else. There's a comparable situation, we're told, coming in the future. It's detailed in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. You may know the throne room scene of chapter 4. It spills over into chapter 5 of Revelation. It's where John is taken up and he sees a similar vision to the one we see in chapter 6 of Isaiah. Reading just one verse out of chapter 4, in describing the throne room, John says this, Out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Here again, the Spirit of God described in the number seven. What's really interesting about this scene, putting it in its proper context and timeline, in the timeline of eschatology, we know that the scene in chapter four and five takes place after the rapture. When you're in chapter 4 and 5, you're in the throne room with John, of course, in this vision, but you're watching a scene that's taking place with all the church present having been raptured. Now, we understand that the church, if it's been raptured, has been removed from the earth. And we understand the Spirit indwells believers and will never forsake us or depart from us. So if all the church is in heaven, then... That would explain why the seven spirits of God can be there as well, because there is no one to indwell on earth. So the spirit is moved to that realm, at least for the time of this scene, having just come up from the earth with all believers. And then, of course, we know from chapter 7 of, Re of Revelation, a new work of faith begins on the earth after that point. So that would imply the spirit has returned to work back on earth. Likewise, here we see seven used as a symbol to mean the complete influence and presence of the Spirit rests on Emmanuel. So up to this point, the description we've seen in Isaiah focuses on Christ, but in which moment of his ministry, principally? The time of his incarnation, right? His first coming. We see references to Bethlehem indirectly by the reference to Je Jesse. We see references to a shoot, something coming new, new birth, implies the start of something like a child. We understand the Spirit is present upon this person in full form. That would coincide with the Gospel's description of Jesus seeing the Spirit descend upon the beginning of his earthly ministry. But then in verse 3, it seems to change from what we started there. Look at verse 3. It starts to say things that are a little different. He will judge in a way that shows a true fear of the Lord. He will judge not in the way regular men do. And this is such a great insight. Men judge in a way that is limited by only what they can see or hear. And really, what else can we do? I mean, that's certainly natural. But Jesus, as God, is not limited in that way. He judges with perfect righteousness, meaning he isn't reliant, strictly speaking, on what he can see and hear. He can know things that cannot be known merely by seeing and hearing. And that knowledge, that omniscience, means he is able to make judgments that are perfect and righteous where a man could have no hope to do so under the same circumstances because they didn't know something they needed to know. 
And then it goes forward from that point to say he has the power to enforce his decrees and judgments. You know, it's one thing to say what is right. It's another thing to make something right. And this king, this ruler, will be so effective, he can not only know what's right and say what's right, but make it true. Nothing we've seen like that. Because it says he will strike the earth with his word. That word is so sure and so strong, it can't be ignored, it can't be broken, it will defeat his enemies. The picture here is not one of a child who eventually is led to the slaughter like a lamb. This is a picture of a righteous, glorified, ruling king who is unquestioned, who is unchallenged in his authority. Well, of course, that doesn't meet the picture of the first coming. That, That refers to which? The second coming, right? Clearly, the transition is made seamlessly in the text, but it's clear that we've moved from the first coming to the second coming in that short little passage. By verse 4, he's moved to the second coming of Christ, at least in the description of Christ. Consider how that leaves chapter 10. Now, I know it described Assyria's destruction, but what did we say that event itself pictures? Tribulation. So, think of it as like two levels of a building. The ground floor is the natural meaning in Isaiah's day. Assyria, you've been bad, you're going to be destroyed. And then you move into chapter 11. What's the simple meaning in chapter 11? God will provide a Messiah for Israel. What's the secondary meaning? In chapter 10 it was, there will be a tribulation for Israel, that they will survive because God will rescue them. In terms of timelines, what will follow tribulation? The Millennial Kingdom, the Messianic Kingdom, the time of Christ's rule on earth. Well, if chapter 10 described the tribulation period before the kingdom, wouldn't we expect chapter 11 to start telling us something about this time of ruling and reigning of Christ after tribulation? That would be a seamless kind of connection, right? You have the bottom line that's seamless, and now you have a top line that's seamless, or a a secondary meaning that's seamless. And sure enough, that's exactly what starts to happen now in chapter 11. The rest of this chapter describes the millennial kingdom. And it's not the only time you'll see this, certainly, in Isaiah. He'll come back to this uh, multiple times. But every time it happens, it's like that offer somebody could give you that you'd jump at if they said, would you like to know what's going to happen to you tomorrow? And this is what God's doing here. He's speaking to Israel, but we'll share in it. So this is a conversation about what we should expect to see in the day when after we return with him, we're living on a new, not not the new heavens and new earth, but a reconstructed version of this earth and a chance to live with, with him for a thousand years. A thousand years. Chapter 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea, as the waters cover the sea." Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Classic verses here in this passage. Uh, In fact, I've I've noticed, maybe you have too, that it's sometimes misquoted. Do you know what I'm referring to, those opening sentences? What do we often hear it said? The, The blank and the blank will lie down together. Lion and the lamb will lie down together, right? Have you ever heard that? Do you notice it's not in the text? I mean, it's in the spirit of the text, but it's not what the text says. And I find it interesting how we blurred all that and just said the lion and the lamb. I guess you could say by extension, if the wolf is lying down with the lamb and the lamb's with the leopard and the leopard's with the goat and then the calf's with the lion, I guess by association, we just roll that into the lion and the lamb. (laughs) What are we talking about here? We were in the one moment talking about Christ and now we're talking about the zoo How did that transition get made? The scene here is of the new order. Of the new order of creation that is established for the time of the Messianic Kingdom. Understanding why this is the new order and what it means takes a few minutes and I hope you'll find it worthwhile time. Let's consider the clues first and try to piece together what Isaiah has given us here. Wolf, lamb, leopard, goat, calf, lion, yearling. All of these are lying down together. Now by lying down we mean, obviously, that they are able to stay in close proximity to one another, and do so agreeably. I mean, if you tried to recreate this scene today, you would quickly unleash this tornado of fur and claws and who knows what else, right? Because 
We're talking here about predators and prey. That's the back and forth that you see in the text. Predator, prey, predator, prey. Coexisting in harmony, which is not something you see today. And all the while, a young child can lead them. Now, some might take that to mean that's Christ. I don't want to say that's a bad interpretation because maybe it's intended to have that double meaning. But in the context of just these verses, I don't think that's the intent. It's intended to emphasize that vulnerability is gone not only for animal to animal, but man to animal. Because obviously a young child could not in today's world live or be even close to this scene, uh, if it could exist at all in the first place, without being in danger. But in this new order, he or she could be without danger in such a scene. I'm often in the mode as I study Scripture to ask myself, what is not there and why? Meaning, there's a million ways God could have said this, but he chose this way. Why? Why didn't he just come out and say, animals will be peaceful again and humans will have dominion over them again? Because in the scene, and later in some of the texts we'll see in a minute, particularly in the, the case of the snakes, he draws some comparisons intentionally to earlier events in, in Scripture that we have to understand if we're truly going to appreciate what this new order is achieving for God. Let's go back through the list. Animals are no longer living off of one another's flesh. They, in other words, put it scientifically, they're no longer carnivorous. They have to therefore return to eating only plants, which means they become herbivores again. Where was the last time we saw animals eating only plants? In the Garden of Eden or prior to the fall on earth. The fact that these animals are all returning to a state of, of plant eating is confirmed in verse 7. It says the cows graze. Well, it's nice to know some things aren't going to change. But then it says that the bear will graze. Now, the bear is an omnivore, so it can eat plants, but it's not known as a grazing animal, not in the same way that a cow is, certainly. But go a step further. The bear's young will no longer pose a threat to the cow's young. That's in the next verse. Well, the only way that could possibly be true is if the bear just swears off meat altogether, which means it becomes an herbivore. The lion, which we know today is, only, is a carnivore. It does not eat anything but meat, in the future will eat straw. All right, well, that is not obviously a contemporary experience. We haven't seen that in, in, in the, anybody's lifetime, certainly not in modern terms. But we know scripturally it has not existed since chapter 9 of Genesis, when after the flood, God opened the door for the, the eating of meat. So it speaks to returning to an earlier point in time. Let's look at the last section we read in terms of breaking down the clues before we start to actually build out the answer here. The final clues are given in 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9. You have a nursing child. Now, when we say a nursing child, the point of mentioning nursing is to emphasize what? Yeah, young child. And then playing safely by a cobra home. A cobra is a snake, but in that culture, and even today really, it represents the most deadly of snakes. So it's intended to be an extreme example on both ends. Youngest, most defenseless child with the most deadly animal probably in their culture in that day. You have this child now placing a hand in the viper's den without fear. I mean, you don't even have to be a snake expert to kind of get the feeling of that, do you? Dark hole, you know a snake's in there, you're just going to go, woo, see what's in there? I mean, that's, that's just guaranteed bite. And yet, in this day and age, that won't be an issue. Now, if you haven't figured out what's going on here by now, verse 8 starts to really clarify what this picture is, right? Can you think of another place in Scripture where humans and snakes have this significant encounter? That is not a coincidental connection. Remember, there were other deadly animals in this day too, but the snake became the point of reference to make that connection for you. Adam, woman, and the serpent, back in chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, have an encounter, and the result of that encounter, and I know you know the story, but consider its ultimate or its ultimate impact. The result of that encounter in chapter 3 was that a curse came upon the earth which resulted in the bringing of physical death to mankind and to animals and enmity was established between snakes and people and there were some other issues there too and there's some symbology associated with that. But the point is those are pieces or elements of that encounter we all remember well. And specifically, I'll read the verses. Chapter 3, verse 14. Then God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On, the, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then 
skipping a verse and going to Adam. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Notice what he is to eat. He is to eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, as a result of the fall, God placed enmity between the serpent and the man, between woman specifically, and he brought physical death into the creation. At the point of the sin of man, what entered the world? Death meaning what? Spiritual death. There was a death of the spirit, which made communion with God impossible at that point without bringing judgment because of sin. God had to separate himself because if he's in the presence of sin, his holy and perfect character and nature as judge demands justice of sin. So as grace to men and to woman, he entered the garden in a noisy way so that they would hear him coming and their conscience would be convicted and they'd hide. That separation was grace in the moment to avoid their own death for the fact that they were now sinful. But physical death was not yet present. God's promise was a spiritual death, not to include necessarily physical death. But as grace to them, he instituted physical death in the curse. Now, why is it grace? Well, it's grace ultimately. Because to live forever in a physical body that is now contaminated by sin is worse than death. But the end of the physical body became the opportunity for a new body, which would not have the sin that Adam had. So... The state sense of, the, of creation since the fall has been a state where everyone born of Adam's likeness comes into the world with a, a sin-contaminated body with a dead spirit and enters into a world that is itself cursed and therefore due for replacement, destined to be replaced just as our body is destined to be replaced because death extended from man to the world at large, to the world as a whole, under this curse. So because the ground itself is cursed, all that comes from it is cursed. Likewise, all are under the curse of death. Now, as I mentioned, and I'm going to come put all, just laying facts out here, you'll have to be patient as they all lay out. In later in Genesis 9, as I mentioned already, God instituted the killing and eating of animals after the flood. It's just three verses. 9-1, God says, or the Bible says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you And the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And you notice that God wisely gave animals a fear of predators to include the fear of mankind before he gave man the instructions to go after them and eat them. I mean, they came pretty much back to back, but I wonder if, Knowing God's word goes out and has the immediate effect. He said, let there be light. There's light. He says, let there be fear. What do you think happened to the animals that were just milling around? (laughs) That's my impression of it anyway. Immediately, fear. What do you do when you have immediate fear? You run, right? What else are you going to do? So he says, okay, you guys have fear. Bring, and you can go eat them. Well, it's a nice thing to tell me now. They're all gone. Putting it all together. God has faced the reality of sin in Adam by responding and then committing both Adam and all his descendants, along with the physical creation itself, committed them to destruction, to a wearing out, Hebrews says in chapter 1, a withering away, because in their disappearing, they become, it is opportunity for God to replace them in a new and better way. And then the process of the wearing takes time, and time is also a grace to us, For without that measure of time, where would the opportunity be for salvation and grace to take hold in our lives? So God comes into a moment that demands immediate justice and responsiveness on his part, but he responds with eminent mercy by saying, I'm going to set about a series of circumstances that allow me to correct for all these mistakes and do it over time such that before it's all said and done, I will will bring some to know me and in doing so give them eternal time with me, eternal life. So that was the beginning of what leads to now chapter 11 of of Isaiah. During the kingdom, we now see animals who have lost their predatory prey instincts, 
They no longer need to attack each other because they no longer plan to eat each other. Isaiah here is describing the kingdom and the consequences of the fall in the kingdom seem to be reversed. You have what it seems to be a return to the circumstances of Eden in at least the animal kingdom. Animals eating plants, no one hurting or destroying each other, just as God designed creation from the beginning. I want, to, I want you to understand how this falls into a larger plan for God, uh, for the way God intends to correct the circumstances of the fall. The fall produced spiritual death, which God then followed with a decree of physical death and the world itself, the creation itself, under curse and therefore a necessity for it to be replaced. When he sets about rectifying all of that, look at the pattern again. First in the life of an individual who is then first given what? New spiritual life, but yet not a physical change at first. At death and resurrection, that new physical life, uh, spiritual life is then added with new physical life. Remember the fall? Spiritual death, physical death. We're coming backward from that. We're saying first new spiritual life, then he gets around to new physical life for each of us. And then we know in Revelation 20 and 21 what is eventually coming, new heavens and new earth. The world itself will eventually be replaced. So by the time you get from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the last step is in place. You have the world having been pulled back to where it originally should be. And in Revelation 19 and particularly Revelation 20, Revelation 20 is largely a description of, a short description at, at one point, of the Messianic kingdom of this same time that we're now studying in Isaiah 11. Isaiah is now expanding out for us a bit of what will be like in that time. It's a kind of in-between moment. We have believers brought into that world incorruptible, so the first two of those three steps have been completed, at least for the believer. But if you know about that time, you know there's also still unbelievers living in the Messianic kingdom, still those, in some cases, who have sin and are unbelievers. It is from this... These are the ones that the enemy deceives when he's let loose at the end of the thousand years. And they are able to rise up and try to usurp the power of Christ to no avail. But it's that other group that is still permeating the earth. So the earth itself still has sin present in it, even though those of us who've come as believers into that time will not personally have sin. We will be reigning over them. Remember we said already, why do you need judgment in a perfect world? You don't. The reason we have Christ ruling is because there needs to be judgments and decrees. The reason we have Christ enforcing his rulings is because we have people who are still doing the wrong thing. There is still sin to be judged in that day. And actually, I said you have to go out and listen on, on my Revelation class. That's actually not entirely true because a good deal of what we talk about in that class on this matter comes out of the book of Isaiah. So we will get to it in time as we go through Isaiah for the most part. Isaiah says this renewed state of, of creation will exist, and notice he says, in all God's holy mountain. What is he referring to there? At very least, the simplest answer is that Jerusalem sits on a mountain in this new uh, time. But the metaphor is also, I think, in, intended here. What is a mountain typically a metaphor for in Scripture? A kingdom. Most classically from where? Daniel chapter 2. The, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel interprets starts with the head of gold, proceeds down a body that eventually, as the toes are described, what crushes and destroys the toes? A big rock that's not cut from human hands that comes down and crushes. And then if you know Daniel chapter 2, what happens after the, the rock strikes the statue? What happens to the rock? Well, here's, here, let me read it to you. Chapter 2 of Daniel, verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Then later, Daniel explains the meaning of that in chapter 2, verse 44. He says, In the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms and it will endure forever. In other words, he went through the statue and said the head means this, the chest means this, the belly is this, and so on. And then when he gets down to the rock that hits it and destroys it and grows into a big mountain, he says that's the kingdom that comes to replace all these human kingdoms that came before it. 
Christ, in other words, coming to reign on earth, replacing all human reign, all human authority that preceded it. So when he says, all these good and hopeful things will be true in all my holy mountain, I think he means not just on the mountain that holds Jerusalem, but in terms of the mountain's picture being all his kingdom, the earth as a whole, and all that has been established. So he rules over a different kind of creation, one that reflects God's original plan. In other words, because God's ruling, sin can't take a step before it's corrected. That's the beauty of the Messianic kingdom. It's not that there isn't sin among some. It's that their sin cannot be useful to them in a world that is under the rule of a perfectly righteous king who can enforce his wisdom in perfection. And for those of us without sin in our life, we end up living in a time that is Edenic. Now look at verse 10. Then and that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, as I read already, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord again, will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his peoples who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathras, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. So here we get to see more of the detail of this time. And again, more of these details start to pile up and explain for sure where we're, what we're looking at when we're looking here. In this day... Isaiah keeps saying, in the day, in the day. What will also be true? Animals are idyllically living with animals and people. The nations as well, he says, will resort. Resort to Christ. The word resort in Hebrew is derash, and it means seek after, but in the sense of to investigate or to inquire about, to learn about. So it's, it's a seeking after Christ. The Lord's presence in the world, in other words, causes Gentiles, and that's the word there for nations, goy, they will cause the Gentiles to flow to Jerusalem. Now remember, he's a Jew writing to Jews. He isn't referring to them when he says nations. They know that. By definition, he's talking about everyone else. So it is the presence of Gentiles in this world that is notable, for one, and that their interest in the, the Messiah, the God of Israel, is so pronounced that it causes them to flock to him with inquiry. And they will find him in a glorious repose in this place, and around him in this place, he, it says, he will have regathered the nation of Israel into their land. Now, I want you to note this. Knowing who's writing this, and therefore knowing when he's writing this, Isaiah calls this regathering what in the verse 11? It's a second regathering. Now, at the time he wrote these words, there hadn't even been a dispersion yet, much less a first regathering. And he's talking about a second regathering. That's how far ahead we know he's looking. We have to move this now past the point of contemporary times for Isaiah, past the point of a regathering which took place years after Isaiah. We have to move this to a point to a second disbursement and then a second following regathering. You'd have to go all the way to 1948 to even begin the second regathering, which comes after the second dispersal, which was AD 70. So we've moved at least that far. The regathering that happened first was the one that followed the Babylonian captivity. But there's another dis a distinction in this text that makes that one impossible to be the one he's referring to because the regathering after the captivity of Babylon that only brought which tribes back into the land? Judah and Benjamin. Those are the only two tribes that were still in Babylon. So the other tribes that were taken captive by Assyria never came back in, not in the first regathering. So when he says in verses 11 and then 12 and then in particularly 13, he talks about Ephraim coming back. And then in verse 11, the remnants of his people and that he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth in verse 12. Those events do not describe the first regathering after the Babylonian captivity because none of Ephraim came back at that point. And it wasn't from the four corners. It was from one little corner. And it was not all his people. Now, if you take that fact alone and put it into the context of cats and dogs living together in harmony and so on, then you aren't talking about today. In other words, you can't take that fact and the fact that we just read in verse 11 and put them in the same day yet. It still makes it future for us today. It has to be. 
So the second one has to be something many times more impressive than what took place during the first. And when it's over, it has to have brought all the tribes of Israel back together. And more than that, they have to come back in harmony, meaning there is no contention among them anymore. These two halves of Israel rejoining. Do you know another famous part of the Old Testament where you see God prophesying the union of these two halves again in harmony? Ezekiel? It's in 37 where he talks about the dry bones will have flesh on them again. And then he tells Ezekiel to go get two sticks and tie them together. Remember verse 15, he says, And son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and the sons of Israel. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? That's a fancy way of saying, what in the world are you doing? He's going to say in verse 19, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. That's his prophetic way of saying, I'm going to bring the nation back together. And then, in verse 14 of Isaiah 11, we hear this. They will then swoop down on the uh, slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. He will wave hand over the river with his scorching wind, and he will strike it into seven streams, and may men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnants of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. In verses 14 through 16, you see the effect of the regathering. And it's using very powerful symbols to the nation of Israel, mentioning powerful foes and very important places, but it's more general than that in its meaning. It's not supposed to be just limited to these uh, particular names. It is a general way of saying both Judah and Ephraim, the two halves of Israel, will join together and in their new form they will be victorious over all their historic enemies. Those that have stood against them over the centuries will now be subject to them. And they will plunder them, or in other words, they will be enriched by them. They will bring booty to them, not the other way around. And it mentions things like a highway from Assyria. That's a clear reference to the way that the Israelites were first, led, the northern kingdom was led out in captivity on a highway to Assyria. Now it will be Assyria coming to them on a highway. It's a reversal of these famous moments in their history. God will take all physical barriers away, preventing the Israelites from returning to their land. He will take away this gulf, it says, of Egypt, which is actually the modern-day Suez Gulf a large strip of water that separates the, the Sinai Peninsula and from, from the Middle East. That, that gulf will be gone so that there will be no impediment there. And then on the other side, on the east side, the Euphrates River is the river here. That's always the way. Anytime you see the river in the Old Testament, it's the Euphrates. It's a major barrier to traffic as well, to foot traffic. It will be smashed. What he's saying is barriers to the Israelites entering their land are gone. Enemies, physical barriers, they will be brought back in by God's power. And in contrast to that, he said, and then in contrast to the way they were taken out, they'll be brought back in. Now, at that point, we go into chapter 12, very brief chapter. It's a song. It's six verses. We read it all at one section. But before you make that transition, think about what you just learned about the Messianic kingdom. A complete reversal of the circumstances of, of animal and men and predatory prey relationships so that there's peace between the animals and man and animals and men in general with Israel back in a place of prominence, all else subject to them. These are all the, the prophetic outcome or the, 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 the fulfillment or realization of all prophecy concerning how Israel would be restored in their land. But it's going deeper than that. You see God moving us further and further away from the fall. Another way to think of it is this. God created a world that was perfect for Adam and woman. And they had dominion over it. But they were, they were not equal to the task. So God will place his son in the position of ruling and providing dominion over his creation so that we can see how it was supposed to be done. Look at the song that ends. It's very short and it finishes our night. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Then you will say on that day, so we're still in the context of that time, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. That's Isaiah's name. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation.
Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You have a song here. It's sung by Israel, closing out the book of Emmanuel, emphasizing their gratitude and their thankfulness in what they have come to inherit in this new time. You may notice, as I mentioned in verse 2, God is my salvation. That's where Isaiah's name now is seen associated with this last two-chapter section. It completes the, the three names of the book of Emmanuel. Why a song here, of all things? I mean, thankfulness is obvious, but why place a song here? It's kind of an interesting element in this story. You may remember a, a point in the time of Moses, right as they come out of Egypt and have passed through the Red Sea and seen the sea close in on those behind them. It's a kind of similar triumphant moment, at least in the, for about ten minutes before they went off and did wrong things again. There was a good moment there. And they sung a song. And I want to just read the first two verses. Listen to how similar it is. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. Would you think maybe some of that resonated for these for the readers of his book, if they saw the connection. At a moment in their past history when God showed himself strong and protected their nation, they had a moment of opportunity there. They followed the event with a song of praise and thanksgiving, but yet that moment itself was followed by great apostasy, which set them on a course that pointed them to the moment Isaiah is now describing, a moment when God himself will have to repeat his strong arm of salvation, but to do it now in a way where they cannot fall again from that perch. And the joy of that moment echoes an earlier one that was yet unfulfilled. I mean, I would imagine for them in their history, this would be something that would immediately catch their ear and get them thinking a little bit about what God is prepared to do in the future. For them and for us, we'll leave with that. Uh, Come back in one week, looking at chapter 13, enough for next week. Certainly can't do two chapters next week. Let's go to Lord in prayer as we finish tonight. Heavenly Father, we are thankful as always to know more about the future, but only that which you have chosen to reveal, Father, and, and in this case particularly, Father, about a future day of glory for your Son most of all, but by association, Father, we would share in that glory through faith. Thank you, Father, for the promise and for the excitement that it brings to know that it is coming. And Father, in our call to witness and to be ambassadors in this day while we wait for your return. I pray, Father, we could take our excitement and our anticipation and turn it, Father, to, a, to an effort and to a diligence in uh, letting others know of what we have, waiting, what we are waiting for and what they may be a part of. Let us share the gospel with them, Father. Let us be a, a light in their life as well so that they may share with us that time. Father, thank you for the time of fellowship to come and the opportunity, Father, to return in your will next week as we finish, continue through the book of Isaiah and seek to finish it. In Jesus' name, amen.